This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. For the past 98 episodes, we've opened the filthy kimono of Donald Trump and his rotating cast of sycophantic co-conspirators to reveal a stunning level of incompetence that was often paired with a brash and unwarranted self-confidence amongst his most deranged staff members. This is known as the Dunning-Kruger effect, and is something I've discussed before on this show. How the dumbest person in the room often thinks that they are the smartest. It was literally the hallmark of Trump's four years in office. Obviously, Don Jr. and Eric come to mind first, but so too does Donald Trump himself. And then this fucking Rudy, the head buffoon, as if there ever was one. A truly next-level corrupt and incompetent scumbag who seems to know, at long last, that his final days will likely be spent in prison. I mean, I'm, I'm more than willing to go to jail if they want to put me in jail. And if they do, they're going to suffer the consequences in heaven. I'm not. We've talked about these people ad nauseum, but there were others, seemingly competent career politicians and government employees who traded their expertise over to Donald Trump for a taste of power. These are the folks who should inspire fear. They are the ones plotting for a MAGA future and continue to pull strings in the background. But it speaks to how much dysfunction there was and how the Trump monkeys were really running the show at that point. While the big headlines and my obsession revolve around Trump and his immediate family, the real conspirators continue to maneuver. I speak first and foremost of fucking Mark Meadows. Because of the rampant and shameless criminality within the Trump administration, Meadows has thus far avoided the scrutiny trained on chuds like Rudy Giuliani and other Trump toadies. But that is soon to end. And I think Mark Meadows should be under oath tomorrow. And I think we should hear from these people who should answer some questions, uh, you know, under penalty perjury about the role they played in attempting a coup. Meadows' name is popping up seemingly everywhere these days, and it's all connected to his aggressive advocacy for Trump's big election lie. All I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes. While Rudy Kaludi provided a smokescreen with his buffoonish idiocy, it was Meadows on the ground trying to pave the way for Trump's election fraud. Two and a half weeks away from Joe Biden's inauguration, a recording of President Trump pressuring the Georgia Secretary of State to find more votes in his favor. On that same call, former North Carolina Congressman and White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Tonight, we take a deeper look at why Meadows could want to be a part of that controversial phone call. Now, a recently released timeline compiled by the brilliant folks at Just Security places former Trump Chief of staff Mark Meadows at the center of efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election and could leave him facing significant criminal exposure. Mark Meadows sending emails to the acting attorney general Jeff Rosen, wording emails, asking him to look at at least three different conspiracies, two of which had already been debunked. This is a remarkable piece of journalism that assembled facts from the best of the new Trump books newspaper articles, and cable television hits, and is a damning portrait of Meadows as an enabler to a delusional, dangerous, and psychopathic president who should have been removed by the 25th Amendment. Instead, Meadows continues to bow and scrape even today. I wanted to, to join you to, to talk about 
uh, really a president that is fully engaged, highly focused, sure. and, and remaining on, on task. Let's take a deep dive into this timeline, because what it shows is an outstanding criminal effort by Mark Meadows to enable Trump's big lie. What we know is that for Meadows to, to ask the attorney general to open an investigation is violation of the contacts policy between the White House and the Justice Department. The House Committee on Oversight and Reform sent Meadows a request to appear for a transcribed interview several weeks ago. The evidence below raises, amongst other questions, whether Congress should coordinate with the Justice Department so as not to tread on any potential criminal investigation whether the House and Senate committees investigating these matters should make a criminal referral to the Justice Department in the course of their oversight work, and why there is no indication that the Justice Department has started such a criminal investigation on its own initiative. It is up to the Justice Department, the current department under Merrick Garland, to decide what former officials like Jeff Rosen, like his deputy, Rich Donahue, can tell investigators what can they discuss, how much information can they give, and how forthcoming can they be. That is really up to Merrick Garland's Justice Department. Just Security goes on to say that Meadows would have more difficulty resisting a subpoena to appear before a grand jury than he would request a subpoena to appear before Congress. Also significant, Meadows may have greater legal exposure than others involved because he presumably understood well when Attorney General William Barr and others informed him that the allegations of widespread election fraud were without any foundation. But what it shows us is that the White House was pressuring the Justice Department to basically give credence, lend credibility to these conspiracy theories as the president was looking for a way to retain power. The timeline starts off on November 9th when Meadows notified former Defense Secretary Mark Esper that he was going to be fired because we don't think you're sufficiently loyal. As his lame duck session as president began, Trump fired his Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper. Just days later, Meadows and Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, created a parallel track to promote election fraud claims with the aim of stopping states from certifying their results. Shortly after that, Meadows introduced Trump to Jeffrey Clark, the acting DOJ official who would later attempt to get the department to directly intervene in Georgia's certification of its election results. On or around November 12th of 2020, Meadows reportedly tells President Trump that Giuliani has asked him to look into allegations that tens of thousands of illegal aliens may have voted in Arizona. Trump campaign staff investigate Meadows' theory. There is a, uh, 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 a boatload of evidence. Meadows tells Trump that Giuliani's team has asked him to look into the issue. Professionals on the campaign staff investigated Meadows' theory, Carol Lennig and Philip Rucker report, but it proves invalid. The vast majority of the cases were U.S. citizens living abroad who voted legally. In mid-November through December of 2020, Meadows introduces President Trump to Jeffrey Clark, who plots to oust the acting attorney general and overturn results in Georgia. Meadows also introduces the president to Mark Martin, who has radical theories on how Pence can stop certification. Jeffrey Clark is his name. He is, in a million different ways, unremarkable. The kind of functionary lawyer that exists in droves in Washington, D.C. He went to a good law school. He worked in a big corporate firm, Kirkland and Ellis. He worked in the George W. Bush administration, went back to Kirkland and Ellis, came back to the Justice Department in 2018, 
In September of 2020, he was put in charge of the DOJ's civil division and that Clark had told the president he agreed that fraud had affected the election results. Basically, he auditioned before the president and let him know that he would be willing to be the trigger man for Donald Trump in his attempt to kill off American democracy in its present form. And that is not hyperbole. Clark met with Trump. He schemed with Trump and he drafted the document I talked about, this letter. It's a letter to the Georgia governor, the Speaker of the House, and the President Pro Tem of the Senate. And it's drafted for Rosen and Donahue to sign, officially from the U.S. Department of Justice. Bender reports that, according to DOJ officials, Meadows has helped introduce Trump to DOJ attorney Jeffrey Clark, who was putting together a secret plan to oust Rosen, the acting attorney general, and force Georgia to overturn its results. Turns out that uh, this guy, Jeff Clark, was writing or drafting these types of letters to all the six states that ended up going for uh, Joe Biden. And I think that, um, you know, what we see is the beginning of the effort to overturn the election. The New York Times reported that Representative Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, Republican, a member of the Freedom Caucus that Meadows helped found, first made Mr. Trump aware that a relatively obscure Justice Department official, Jeffrey Clark, the acting chief of the Civil Division, was sympathetic to Mr. Trump's view that the election had been stolen, according to former administration officials who spoke with Mr. Clark and Mr. Trump. Perry later confirms the New York Times report. At the low end of the spectrum, Clark is a lawyer. Clark should be facing ethics uh, charges in whatever bar... Uh, he belongs to. At a maximum, we should look at possible criminal referral of these actions. He attempted to mess with a state election. He lied in his draft letter about evidence that simply does not exist. That needs to be looked at. Then around Thanksgiving, Meadows acknowledges to the White House communications director that he knows Trump lost the election. This is big because it proves that Meadows knew Trump's claim was patently false. Alyssa Farah reportedly tells Meadows she wants to step down as communications director. And I quote, We need to give a graceful exit and acknowledge that Biden won, she tells Meadows. I know, I know, Meadows says. We're going to get the president there. Earlier in the month, Meadows had multiple conversations with Senator Mitch McConnell, in which Meadows assured that they would pursue all potential avenues, but recognized that they might come up short and that Trump would eventually bow to reality and accept defeat, the New York Times reported. Then Saturday, December 12th of 2020, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, warns Meadows about making personnel moves. General Milley reportedly confronts Meadows, asks if Trump and he are planning to replace FBI Director Ray or CIA Director Haspel and warns Meadows, just be careful, says the chairman, who was concerned at the time that Trump will try to hold on to power. Milley wanted Meadows to know that he was watching. Did anyone think the leaders of the U.S. military were idiots? He wanted the White House to understand that he was drawing hard boundaries, Lennig and Rucker write. There were also, according to this book, daily check-in calls that Milley started to do with uh, Mark Meadows and some others. So one of the interesting things about that is in the book, uh, Milley says he was doing it also to keep tabs on Trump, as if by talking to Pompeo 
and Mark Meadows, he would get a better sense of what's going on. Now skipping ahead to January, the timeline shows that Meadows arranged and participated in the call in which Trump asked Georgia's Secretary of State Raffensperger to find 11,780 votes. And during the call, Meadows asked the Georgia officials to share voting data even after they told him they could not because it was protected by law. The people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes which is one more that we have because we won the state. This is just a preview of what awaits Mark Meadows. In assembling this information, Just Security had provided a clear roadmap for the DOJ to pursue him on any number of criminal charges. The question is whether they have the will to do so. And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa is Sam Sater. As the host of the Majority Report, Sater has become one of the leading voices in progressive media. An alumnus of the ill-fated but much-beloved Air America Radio Network, his show has lived on with a dedicated fan base for the past 16 years, most recently as part of the Young Turks Media Network. His current format airs daily on YouTube, where he's amassed over a million subscribers. Or viewers can stream a 60-minute version of Sater's show on NBC's Peacock. He's an equal opportunity hitter and is not afraid to train his lens on Democrats if they stray too far from the mission, but continues to be a fierce bulwark and counterweight to the right-wing media machine that is beating heart of the MAGA agenda. He joins me as Cuomo's Gropergate continues to metastasize for the governor. This is a fun hour, so stick around and let's listen now to that conversation. I want to start today by talking about Andrew Cuomo. Right. He's been really making the rounds in the news uh, quite quite a lot recently. Now, the information in the report is incredibly thorough, damning as well as devastating. There's absolutely no doubt that this man was a serial harasser of women and has been for many, many years. But what's not so clear is the infrastructure that exited around the governor that allowed him to operate like he did without fear of reprisal. I'm most interested in the role Chris Cuomo played in advising his brother and using his perch at CNN to help his brother survive scandal. Now, should he face some kind of reckoning from the network as well? What's your thoughts? I mean, I uh, I, I think Chris Cuomo and other members, broadly speaking, of the media, you know, lionized uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo uh, uh, during you know, COVID. And really, um, I think it was just, frankly, a vacuum of leadership that existed in the country that 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 accounted for that because his uh, performance was uh, not good, <laughs> uh, frankly, during COVID. So I think there's a lot of um, uh, blame around the media. And as far as Qu Chris Cuomo, like I'm 
frankly, shocked that they ever allowed him to interview his brother on any type of like regular basis. You know, maybe a one off as a as a as a novelty, but to, to interview him on a regular basis, I think is absurd for him to even not recuse himself at any time on air is absurd. I, I mean, I, I think I mean, look in his personal life, if he's going to advise him, he should he should say that on on air. I mean, and um, I, I don't know that he shouldn't be allowed to to be a brother to his his brother, but he should. That should have been um, announced on air, and he should have been recused from covering any of it, and and he should have copped to that. And so, I, I don't know internally at CNN if they are aware of it, but certainly, uh, you know, uh, if I was the head of that network, I wouldn't. I I, I would. I, I would sack him if I didn't know. And if I did know, then I'm culpable, too. Well, let me ask you this, though. Obviously, CNN, run by Jeff Zucker, they know that Chris Cuomo is the brother, the younger brother of Governor Andrew Cuomo. There is no doubt about that. I mean, I know Jeff Zucker. I know Chris Cuomo personally. Right. And I can tell you um, they're both bright and they both certainly, especially Zucker, knows that. Chris is Andrew. Of course. Of course. Now, one of the problems, though, of asking Chris to recuse himself is that he has a major spot over there on CNN. I mean, he is a major primetime night spot. How can he not cover his brother? And as long as he's covering it fair, what's what's the difference? Um, well, how can he not cover if, if if that's a problem for that hour of television, then they should replace him. Um, I mean, who's to say that he's covering him fair? I mean, what does that mean? Like, how can you possibly cover your brother uh, that you have a good relationship with fairly? Or how can you cover your your brother who you don't have a good relationship with fairly? I mean, you're I'm sorry. It's just like you don't do it if you want to maintain any type of journalistic credibility as a as a network or as a host. I mean, I you know, just the I, I mean, regardless of whether he covered him fair or not, you don't want to do it. It just it, it's just not it's a, it's a clear conflict of interest. Well, what's interesting is the brothers actually do have an incredibly close relationship. I mean, Chris would often talk about his brother as really being more like a father uh, figure than as a brother, an older brother. First of all, it's based upon the number of years. But Mario, uh, you know, his father was um, always out and Andrew really played a very key role in Chris's life. So I could understand your point about not being able to fairly yeah, I don't or even, accurately like, cover your Michael, brother. I don't even care if they have a good relationship or not. He's a brother. It's a conflict of interest, period. End of story. You, get, you, you put somebody else on that beat. You want to cover Andrew Cuomo uh, in that hour? Then you 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 have some type of, uh, you know, here's five minutes from some other anchor on uh, CNN who's going to come in and cover my brother because, I mean, that's, you know, look, the last name giveth and the last name taketh away, as it is, in my opinion. But uh, it, it didn't. And, you know, I, I just think that it, it, it hurts the credibility to the extent that there is any of CNN. So I'm sure that you would equate the same to Ivanka and Jared working as senior advisors for Trump I in the would, administration. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I, I mean, that nepotism law is kind anybody. of. Yeah, that nepotism well, law, I, I mean, think, look, really gets to you. Huh? I actually think um, them advising Trump is problematic in a different way. Right. Like it's not a question of a conflict of interest. Um, And it is 
that there's uh, opportunities for double dealing and there's opportunities for leveraging that position, which I think they did as far as I can tell. And so um, it's a it's I, I, it's problematic, but it's not exactly analogous. Let me ask you this then. Do you, anything specific come straight to your mind that CNN or Chris did in regard to the coverage of Andrew that stands out in your mind that they may have done wrong or you think is wrong? No. I mean, I, I don't. To be honest with you, I, I, it, it, it's, it's completely irrelevant. Like I say, like it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter what my opinion is or uh, anybody else's opinion of the coverage is. You have somebody who has a close relationship with them. They were advising them as a crisis manager. You announce that and you uh, and you do not cover the guy. That's like that's just a, it's just a basic tenet of 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 building trust with an audience. Uh, you know, and now maybe the audience doesn't care, but I think it uh, degrades the 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 function of news on some level. Well, let me ask you this then, Sam. Did you have a chance to watch the video that Cuomo made in an attempt to absolve himself yes. that showed him hugging and kissing scores of people along with pictures of Barack Obama and others doing the same, right? Do you think that the governor truly believes what he's saying and that his actions are misunderstood? Or was he just desperately trying, you know, to come up with some freaking weird fucking defense for his actions where there are actually none? Because in my opinion, this is a man who is as shrewd an operator as exists, but he comes out with this, I don't know, there's no other way to say it, this fucking stupid, this tone deaf, you know, why me, you know, plea. If you would discuss with my listeners your thoughts. Um, I mean, they're not terribly dissimilar from yours. Uh, it was a, a desperate attempt. It was hilarious. I mean, literally, I we watched this on my show and um, almost could not stop laughing. It was uh, it, it's look, it's his obvious attempt to um, to deflect from it. The report specifically actually addressed that uh, that point that this was not just, you know, a gregarious guy. I'm sorry. Like, if you show me pictures of you kissing some of the male um, uh, state troopers on your uh, detail, if you show me some uh, some pictures of you rubbing the belly of some of the male uh, state troopers on your uh, security detail, if you can point to uh, an opportunity, you know, a time when you elevated a male state trooper, even though they weren't um, uh, qualified based upon the state troopers um, a need for, you know, uh, time spent as a state trooper to serve on his security detail, then maybe we're starting to get anywhere. But there aren't any of those pictures because it's absurd. And it, it is it makes it all the more, I think, disgusting on some level. But look, I have a very low estimation of Andrew Cuomo as it is. I mean, I you know, the the, the fact of the matter is that he's uh, sailed through um, his um, his governorship. Uh, riding on the name of his father, who, who frankly, I think Mario Cuomo was also overrated uh, to some extent as a governor as well. But, um, you know, you, from a progressive uh, standpoint, which I am, um, uh, which I, you know, that's my perspective on things. Uh, this was a guy who did everything he could to thwart the will of the voters 
by midwifing the IDC, which was a caucus within the Democratic Party to caucus with Republicans because he did not want uh, Democrats in the state of New York to have uh, control of both houses of the legislature because he did not want to sign progressive legislation. And it's not even that progressive of legislation. He did not want to sign any legislation that two houses of lawmakers of, controlled by Democrats would produce. And, you know, uh, he got away with that for a long time until until the left started to challenge him in the state. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here. And we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, check out the August 5th episode with neuroscientist Douglas Fields, who discusses the rage circuit in our brain and why we snap. Or the fascinating interview with journalist Nicole Perlroth from August 2nd discussing the new cyber arms race. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Like the July 6th interview with master pickpocket Bob Arno on how he spots a mark. There's an episode for everyone though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode on how to deal with corrupt and crooked bosses, addiction, brain chemistry, and so much more. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity, or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. So search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, let me ask you why then, why is no one talking about the um, nursing home scandal? I mean, yes, I get that he's a serial toucher, he's a... Uh, When it comes to the allegations by these 11 women, they're disgusting. They're despicable. I talked about this the other day with Jennifer Taub, uh, who was on my show. Um, But no one's actually talking about the nursing home scandal. The fact that they were putting bodies in freezers and keeping them outside only until one of the freezers malfunctioned did we actually really know. Why is he not being helped to task on this one? Well, I mean, that's being investigated, too, uh, is my understanding. Um, and so uh, I, I think we're going to get I think we're going to see more accountability before it. I think it's I think part of that is it is, you know, there are no, you know, with this case of his uh, sexual assault. And I agree with you. I mean, he he deserved it. But it's a failure of the media again on some level. And I think it was sort of a desire by um by, you know, uh, Democrats and liberals to have uh, some type of leader during covid. And, you know, he went out there and did his uh, his press conferences and it provided like some, uh, you know, superficial relief and sense that we don't have absolutely no one at the helm in the midst of a pandemic. And, you know, uh, I, it, it served that function. And I think that created a myth around him that was very difficult to puncture even with the the facts of his failures on covid i would say that 
that's the most at least I think I think ultimately criminal um, the cover up at the very least, um, because there was, I think, a a specific effort to hide that. But I but it was also corrupt insofar as I think they wanted to buy time uh, for liability protection for some of his big donors. But there's also the, the fact that New York State has been cutting public hospitals uh, over the course of uh, of Cuomo's tenure. And you just need to look at the data. People who live in low-income areas, they died at a higher rate during this significantly than um, than other people in New York State. And at least a part of that was a function of cuts to public hospitals. And why you do that? Because uh, the private hospital uh, lobby is a huge donor of yours. I mean, that's the way that Andrew Cuomo worked. It was all transactional, uh, from uh, hospitals to charter schools and Ken Langone and I mean, just on and on and on. And so um, I think it's been a, a broad failure of the media in covering Andrew Cuomo and, and characterizing his leadership. You know, something that I find a lot um, when I do these mea culpa podcasts is after the release, I get a ton of responses from listeners and people who want to make comments. And the one common theme that I'm beginning to really see a lot of is people's failure today to trust our Justice Department. And I'm not talking about just our federal Department of Justice, but our state Justice Department here as well, um, in terms of accountability. It doesn't appear that anybody is being held accountable. But you brought that up, that he's going, you know, that there's investigations into all of the deaths of these individuals, these nursing home um, residents that they obviously hid. I mean, you don't put a body into a freezer and then say, oh, I didn't know it was there. That's bullshit. You know it. I do it. These are semi-tractor trailers that are freezers that were brought to locations in order to house the bodies. Instead of advising the public on the number of deaths, they hid it. So yes, there needs to be accountability. But the one common theme by my listeners is why is it taking so long? Do you have any thoughts? Well, I, I'm curious. I mean, you know, one of the things that's always um, uh, that you would have insight into that has always um, bedeviled me is um, how is it that Donald Trump existed in New York State for as long as he did without running afoul of the state AG or the, the city district attorney or, uh, you know, I don't know, the Southern District of, of, of um, the U.S. Attorney's Office. I mean, I, you, you would have better insight into that uh, than I would. Um, but uh, I, I, I've, always, I've always found it to be incredibly mysterious, right? I mean, this is a, he is, a, he is what you would call a, you know, sort of like a target-rich environment. If you are a, um, an attorney general, or DA, and you want to get some acclaim, which, as far as I can tell, is a huge motivating factor for a lot of these prosecutors at that level. Um, why didn't? Why was there nothing after that uh, consent decree? Um, or you know, back uh, I don't know, forty years ago now. Well, actually, Donald was held to task by both the DA's office as well as the um, Attorney General's office. You may remember there was an action brought years ago. And it wasn't Donald himself. It was the Trump organization, Don Jr. and Ivanka, in their lying about the Trump Soho project in terms of the numbers that they claimed um, of units sold and the price per square foot. 
Donald liked to call it puffing when, in fact, the DA's office declared that it was lying. He was held, um, you know, to test there. They had to implement new systems of how they do advertising. Did it really change anything? The answer is no. Uh, then the attorney general, you may remember, in the Trump University case, uh, ultimately, Trump was required to pay. And an interesting question becomes, who actually paid it? There are allegations that it was not Trump who paid it, but it was like a $28 million fine uh, on Trump University. Wasn't the, these actions were all like, what, 2016, right? Uh, Correct. Yeah, I mean, what? what but the guy was a target rich, uh, you know, uh, the, the, he was operating in New York for 30 years up to 2016. And I am very skeptical that there wasn't, uh, you know, issues around like, I don't know, Felix Sater and um, and what I mean, the, I find it very, very odd that there was no. They, they, nobody could find anything on a guy that I think was like uh, would have been a huge boon to somebody's political career. Yeah, I don't know. So we should probably investigate that, though, early, early on. And I'm talking about like 25 years ago more. He was, again, you know, brought to um, to court in regard to his racist that was the um, consent failures. decree by the DOJ. Yeah, the but that was like 70, what, 75 or something like that. I mean, that was. Yes. It's hard for me to believe between 75 and 2016, this is that a guy Donald was a good who, boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I find that very, very difficult to believe. And I think there's probably a story there, but I, I've never been able to wrap my head around it. Well, let me ask you this then. What is it about the New York and I'll add New Jersey governorship that attracts such scandal? Because over the years, they've traded places in a resignation sweepstakes that has ping-ponged from McGreevy to Spitzer, from Patterson to Chris Christie, and now um, Andrew Cuomo. Now, each of their situations was unique. But in the end, these were powerful men at the height of their power that were felled by a combination of narcissism, hubris, and blinding ambition. Fuck happened with them. Well, narcissism, uh, hubris and blinding ambition, I think, is a is a big part of it. I mean, I think like, you know, it's um, uh, I, I think Spitzer's st scandals very different from Cuomo's scandals. Um, and you're talking about a, a but you're talking about a, um, um, you know, in New York and, and in New Jersey, for that matter, um, really big states with a lot of money sloshing around and um with a lot of people. And I think that you need to have a certain amount of hubris and, and narcissism uh, to think that you're the guy to be the governor. And, um, uh, you know, I think you look at like a guy like Spitzer, you know, felt, you know, here he is making all sorts of enemies with um, really wealthy financial uh, types in this uh, state. And it was a tremendous amount of hubris to think that, he could get away with um, seeing prostitutes on a regular basis and that somebody wasn't going to weaponize those. Um, and Cuomo has been doing this. You know, this is a guy who's built a machine for, you know, uh, during his father's uh, um, three terms as governor of New York. I mean, so this is a guy who is really well entrenched and, and, and you know, I think you can see the attitude of just like they're above the law and um, or that they're untouchable. And 
you know, uh, I think it takes a tremendous amount of like narcissism and hubris probably to, to run for office. And if you have any uh, sort of inclinations to abuse that power, uh, they do it because they think they can't. They're untouchable. So now let's take a look at the current field. We know that in the Republican field, we definitely have Andrew Giuliani who claims that he's going to, he's so stupid. It's scary that Andrew Giuliani wants to run for the office of the governor here in New York. Now, there are many things that you could say about Andrew. Narcissistic, I'm not really sure about that. Hubris, I'm pretty definitive that he's not. And blinding ambition. The guy was teaching golf at Trump's golf course in both New Jersey and in Los Angeles, right? Blinding ambition. I mean, how does somebody like an Andrew Giuliani decide that he's considering the running for the highest office here in New York to one of the most important states in our country? I mean, he's a grifter. I mean, that's it. I mean, it's just like uh, he's it's uh, it's just um, he's going to go out and he's going to raise money, maybe, or he's just going to elevate himself. There's, uh, you know, um, I, I, I think there is a fundamental problem with the Republican Party in this country that uh, predates Donald Trump. In fact, I think um, the fact that Donald Trump won the primary was was proof of that. And and, and I, you know. On the day that he came down that escalator, uh, I went and did a hit that night on um, on Chris Hayes' show on MSNBC. And I think we actually played the, the escalator thing as, you know, and, and did like a Mystery Science 3000 thing where we were almost watching it on a big screen. And during the break, I turned to him and I said, he's going to win the primary. And, uh, you know... Uh, he was like, I, I find that very hard to believe. And, and, and I had been listening to uh, right wing talk radio for uh, 15, 20 years and um, had been covering the, the conservative movement uh, on radio myself. And um, the, the Republican Party had built a suit uh, that Donald Trump just happened to fit into. And uh, so it was quite obvious to me uh, that, um, that 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 he he was exactly what the Republican Party had been headed to. And so, you know, uh, the the idea that someone like Andrew Giuliani or, or whoever it is, you know, just says, like, I'm going to uh, pretend like I can do this. It, it doesn't take any bona fides at all. It just takes the to use the right words and to, you know, have been sort of presented uh, to a, a conservative audience um, that you have value. But Andrew Giuliani is not going to come remotely close to the governor's office. I mean, he may visit it at one point, but he's never going to be the governor of this state. He's never going to win any uh, statewide ele uh, uh, election in this in this state. I mean, never. And uh, I mean, it's funny because you said that, you know, he's trying to elevate himself. And I'm thinking, you know, elevate to what? To head golf pro, right? To general manager of one of the Trump National Golf Clubs, to Mar-a-Lago? I mean, seriously, the guy actually thinks that he belongs Anywhere near the office of the governorship? No, he doesn't believe of, that. Be he doesn't. I mean, he may, but I mean, he does, that's not what he's trying to elevate himself to. I mean, he's trying to elevate himself to the things that you said or to just, you know, uh, running some type of grift like half of the people uh, who have left that um, that that administration. Um, and I mean, that's just the nature of the uh, right wing sort of, you know, Tor I mean, you know, look at like Sarah Palin. You know, I mean, she was the uh, the er uh, Donald Trump. 
And she was chosen by John McCain, who was uh, supposedly, you know, one of the good Republicans. He was she was put, uh, you know, uh, she could have been a heartbeat away from the presidency. And what's the difference between Sarah Palin and Donald Trump? I mean, you know, uh, fundamentally speaking. And, um, you know, she went on a book tour. She did her she did her uh, reality show. I'm, I'm sure Giuliani is looking for something to, uh, along those lines. I, mean, I have a question a for you. Difference. Now that sure. we mentioned that that escalator thing, I have a question for you. the 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 reports that there were paid actors in that audience. Where did you guys find those people? Okay, so that's not accurate. Uh, that's a Corey Lewandowski lie uh, that was promoted out there. Uh, Trump had hired a, a firm. Uh, they do a lot of political lobbying and work. And what they did is they reached out to another company to bring in people. And it was a total of 50 that were paid. But they weren't paid to cheer or to do anything. There were so many buses and so many people that have replied back. That part is a lie that had replied back that they wanted to come. And we had T-shirts manufactured. There were placards that we were going to hand out. Yes, the placards were made by by the campaign and so on. But the 3,000 or 4,000 people that swarmed Trump Tower that day, they were not paid actors. It's an absolute lie. But it's the 50 inaccurate. were to and sit the, in, the, um, in the audience? The 50 were to be outside, and they were directing people into Trump Tower, setting people up with buses, because obviously on Fifth Avenue, you can't just leave a bus. Uh, people were coming from, you know, whether it's New Jersey or uh, Connecticut or Long Island or Queens, whatever. So they were directing, and then they came in to the, you know, to watch the— the antics that were going on. It's an absolute lie. And you talk about that as well uh, when you talk about media failure. There are so many lies that, or let me not even call them lies. There are so many inaccuracies that are promoted by the media. And then the problem is, one, they don't do their own fact-checking anymore because they're afraid that they're going to get outsourced or um, by a blogger or somebody else, that they just run with the story. And I myself, unfortunately, you know, was subjected to this early on and all the way up and through my incarceration. So this story, which keeps rearing its ugly head, that they were all paid actors. It's not true at all. Um, it's as stupid and ridiculous as the um, lie that I was paid by the Ukrainian president, Poroshenko. He was either 400 or 600,000. Nobody knows the true answer because I wasn't paid a penny, right, in order to extend the time period of the meet and greet with President Trump at the time. It's just not true. So I said, show me where that money went because I never received it. I've never even spoken to Poroshenko in my life or anybody that works for Poroshenko. So where that came in, over 10,000 articles. Interestingly enough, the promoter of that lie was the BBC. And Poroshenko, through very competent counsel in England, brought a defamation action against the BBC the BBC was required to not only remove that article, but to apologize. And they ended up paying him uh, a pretty significant amount for the def uh, defamatory statement. But these media failures like that. How about Prague? I've never been to Prague. Why I've didn't you the, sue uh, the BBC? 
because I was in prison at the time. And actually, uh, I did bring a lawsuit at one point. I think it was against uh, the Daily Beast in regard to the whole Prague story and the um, the Christopher Steele, uh, the bullshit dossier. But unfortunately, that's when the Southern District of New York ramped up everything on me. You know, my case, unlike what I had said to you before, that this these wheels of justice and accountability go very, very slow, unless you're Michael Cohen. Because my case started and finished off of a one-page information, and I was advised that I have 48 hours from a Friday at 5.30 p.m. To that, to that Monday to plead guilty. I didn't even know what I was pleading guilty to. Or they're filing an 85-page indictment, and they were going to take me and my wife out of our apartment in handcuffs. And I wasn't going to play that game. Because you could tell that the venom was out there, and they needed it for what? They needed it for their own elevation. And six out of the eight animals that prosecuted me are all over at, like, Paul Weiss. They're at Lowenstein Sandler, at Davis Polk, at Guggenheim Partners, and so on. It was all about their careers. had nothing to do with truth. And that's a big problem, too. It's our media's failure. I mean, um, uh, why, why wouldn't you sue the BBC now? Unfortunately, so I spoke with counsel, the same counsel that represented Poroshenko, and it's a one year from the date of the publication. Unfortunately for me, again, I was away and I didn't think about it that way, but uh, I will send them a letter and ask for a full retraction and apology, which I will post on social media anyway and get it done that way. But it's a one year, unfortunately, unless there's exigent circumstances. they, they They don't let you sue from prison. No, no, it's it's one it's one of the hangups of you know being uh, either at the camp or locked up in solitary confinement. They let you write uh, though. You wrote your book there too, right? I did. I mean, I wrote the book, but um, I didn't write and send letters because you're not allowed to seal your um, you know your envelopes. They have they take a look, they read it, and anything that I would say, you know, obviously I was high profile and everybody was all of this correctional officers were interested in who was coming to visit me you know like they all went crazy when rosie o'donnell came to visit me or maggie or donnie deutsch or scaramucci you know they all they all came and they um it just became a shit show and even when the district attorney's office you know came they sent like six seven guys three different um on three different occasions to come visit me it just created an entire shitstorm for them uh some of them liked it and most of them didn't because most of them didn't care for me they're as the we security used to call guys. them the red be- yeah but the red beards uh, the correctional officers as we used to call them um Many of them are big Trump supporters, and uh-huh. uh, I was I was far from somebody that they liked or um, cared for. Did they give you grief while you were writing the book? Did they know that you were doing it? No. And what I would do is I would manage to get the pages out um, without uh, it going through the the Bureau of Prisons mail system and so on. How did I was you do able that? To get the pages out. Well, I can't talk about that, but I would manage to get did the you- pages out. Did you write it on I wrote it handwritten on long handwritten on a yellow pad that I purchased from the commissary. I would work on it uh early in the morning because you get up at four thirty AM for breakfast. Uh I would spend an hour and a half uh in the library and then I would go to work. And while I was there uh at work, I would just I had my own little desk in a corner with the chair and I would just write away and what kind I would of work? then read 
What kind of work? Well, I started out, I started out, um, over at the pipe shop and I was doing, uh, like building stuff like gates, um, and fixing the fire hydrants that were all broken in the institution. Uh, we built bathrooms that needed to be replaced, showers, et cetera. Um, you know, so that was fun. Then I ended up working over at the, um, water treatment facility, which was also known as the shit house. So I was contemplating on actually calling the book from the White House to the shit house, but I decided to go with disloyal instead. Uh huh. And they let you, <laughs> and, and you just write it at the at the shit house. Is that basically where you? Yeah, I would just write there, and the, and the guys that worked uh, over there were all great. You know, there was like. 10, 15, 20 minutes worth of work at most, but you're there for the eight hour day, um, except for lunch when you would go back. And that's how I wrote it. And then it would get transcribed, um, onto, uh, computer, you know, onto a computer. I would then reread it, make edits, notes, send it back and forth, back and forth. It was, it was a, Do it was a hell of a computer process. access in the, um, there's no computer access at all. There's no internet. There's no computer. There's nothing. It so is, somebody it would is smuggle truly back arcane. in the, uh, somebody would smuggle back in the, the typewritten the, version. The typewritten pages. Yeah. Wow. Yep. yep. So I want to change gears for a moment. Yeah. Oh yeah. A big piece of paper. I want to change gears for a moment and discuss the eviction moratorium and what's happening to millions of home renters. Um, and why this has become a political hot potato for President Biden. Now, first off, can you explain the confusing chain of events here? Because the Supreme Court, led by Kavanaugh, um, by the Kavanaugh decision, decreed that it could only be extended through legislation. But Democrats, led by Pelosi, failed to act and tossed it to the White House for the administration to extend, which Biden did in the final hours, to avert a potential humanitarian crisis. Now, there are shades of the Obama DACA decision here. Can you just do me a favor and unpack all of this for my listeners? Yeah, I mean, basically what happened was, um, you, you know, that 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 Supreme Court decision that happened in late June um, and uh, Kavanaugh, what it he he was it was what he wrote was actually more dicta than anything else um and and he said look i think this is unconstitutional but it already exists and in what is sort of a bizarre sort of formulation but um even though it's unconstitutional it's going to expire in a month so we won't do anything about it etc cetera, etc cetera. it was a 5-4 decision he was joined by roberts uh, with the other three uh, liberal justices and then it appears uh, that uh, Pelosi was waiting on the White House. Um, the White House was not giving them direction and there was no urgency that seemed to be there for uh, either, you know, the Democratic leadership in the House or in uh, in the White House. And um, and then with two days left before their um, their vacation for seven weeks, uh, or six weeks, I should say. Uh, the White House threw it to the the House. Uh, Pelosi made a um, sort of a, a half-hearted effort to uh, to pass it by unanimous consent. It wouldn't get unanimous consent because of the Republicans, and so uh, nothing happened. And then, basically, what what took place is Cory Bush, um, with uh, who is a new Congresswoman uh, from St. Louis a member of uh, the squad 
um, with the support of some of the other uh, members of the squad. But she basically camped out, literally slept overnight on the steps of the Capitol Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, Monday nights, drew attention to it. And there was an outcry by the uh, progressive wing of the party. And, and supposedly from reporting, I saw that there was and, you know, it's hard to know who's trying to cover their ass in the, in the White House. There were um, there were aides to the president who were saying we, we need to extend this uh, because the money that has been earmarked through the uh, last covid relief bill um, has not made it to the people who need it. There's forty five billion dollars of, of of rental relief. And something like $2 billion uh, has been dispersed, uh, maybe less. And so and it's basically because this country has no mechanism to to help people who are not wealthy. I mean, we have a mechanism to give, you know, uh, the wealthy a, uh, a deduction on their mortgage interest. We have mechanisms in which to provide major corporations with uh, funds if they need it. In the case of covid that that happened overnight. Uh, but there's no mechanism to deliver uh, money to people who are uh, struggling to pay their rent uh, or, you know, because of a pandemic. There's just simply no mechanism, um, which is, I, you know, I take as a failure of our of our of our government and, and of our society broadly. But um, so the money didn't get out. And there was some uh, speculation in the White House. The advisors were saying, like, maybe what we should do is extend it. By the time it gets to the Supreme Court, hopefully Treasury will have figured out a mechanism, uh, you know, to to actually deliver this money, this money, because the states have been have had no apparatus to provide it. I think in New York State, there was um, I don't maybe a billion dollars or so that was uh, earmarked to New York State for rental assistance. And and like maybe a hundred thousand had been dispersed. Uh, those figures aren't. Uh, those are off the top of my head, but the, the dynamic is is definitely the case. And um, but they felt that if it went back to the Supreme Court, then Kavanaugh would be spiteful and would somehow find any health measures taken by the federal government to be unconstitutional. I think that's a dubious claim, uh, but that's what supposedly uh, they were saying out of the White House. And obviously they realized like, oh, no, we, we've got to extend it. And so. Uh, on Tuesday of this week, I think it was, uh, Biden announced that they were going to extend it um, or they, that he had asked the CDC to look into extending it, which is they're going to extend it. And, and, and the argument is, well, that one ran out, but there's a need for a new one because of the Delta variant, which I think was just a way to sort of placate uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh and give him an opportunity to say, like, OK, well, then it's fine. We'll see. You know, the whole system, you're right. The whole system is flawed. And it's flawed because there is no system. I have a lot of friends who are in uh, the real estate world here in New York City, many of whom have, you know, many, many buildings that are either rent stabilized, rent controlled, uh, some of the units of fair market. And one of the big problems that they're facing right now, there is no deduction in real estate taxes here in New York under our illustrious mayor de Blasio, um, real estate taxes continue to go up and up and up. And they're not taking in any income because the courts now will not entertain eviction as a direct result. So the courts won't even entertain a complaint of eviction. Now, it to me, it seems very clear. If you're a Section 8 
well, this should be very easy. Your name is already on the roll and just make sure that the building is being paid. Now, if you're rent stabilized or rent controlled, why can't they do something whereby the it doesn't it's not the obligation of the landlord to be responsible for what really the country is supposed to do, and that's to be responsible for its citizens in bad times like we're going through now. I mean, I um I I I, I think that um, that you know I agree with you that there's there, there's a flawed system or an absence of a system uh, to make people whole. I am a little bit, frankly, you know, less concerned about um, uh, you know major holders of real estate, um, frankly, uh, than I am you know the 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 people who are in fear of, of losing their homes. Um, you know, and ultimately, you know, uh, these uh, landlords, when you're operating in that, that big of, uh, of a, of properties, you, you know, as well as anybody that there's a big float, you get loans, um, this, this money's ultimately coming, then you're ultimately going to be made whole, or at least as close to whole as possible. But, um, but it's, you know, for individual families who are terrified at the idea of like, oh, OK, we're going to get booted, you know, J- uh, July 31st. Oh, now maybe we'll get booted in 60 days. Maybe we'll be living in our car. Maybe we'll be living in the streets that uh, I, I reserve most of my uh, sympathy for those folks, to be honest with you. But you see, my feeling is I, and I'm sympathetic to them as well, but I take it a little bit differently. I see the two going hand in hand. You see, it's not the landlord's responsibility. It's the government's responsibility. And we go right back to the fact that there is no mechanism whatsoever for government to get the money into the hands of the people who need it, right? Or the people who would ultimately have it like the landlord. You know, it's very hard to tell a landlord, a guy owns a building, 20 units into it, and half a rent stabilized, 20% rent controlled in the other Eight units are, let's say, um, you know, fair market. The fair market will not cover the building. Now you have the increase in the real estate. So at some point in time, the owner says, I can't put more money into the property. I can't do proper maintenance. Who suffers? The tenant. At the same point in time, what if he says, you know what? I've had enough. I've just had enough. And they walk away from the buildings. This was going on in the city, you know, um, right. quite, you know um, quite often. And now they walk away from it. Well, what happens to all the tenants, right? Uh, there's nobody maintaining the building. There's nobody. The owner says, screw it. I can't lose I'd be very this much kind in favor, of money. I'd be very much in favor in that scenario of the city um, uh, taking over the, the building. And, um, and ultimately- You do not want the city to take over. You just go uptown, you know, and you take a look at some of the city-owned properties. You know, I, I, when you I start looking also NYCHA, at like the HUD properties, NYCHA they are garbage. Is, is completely underfunded, uh, without a doubt. We live in, uh, in New York City. We live, live uh, in the, um, we have the highest concentration of uh, of government housing in the country with the highest number of units and the the vast majority of units in the in the country are in new york and uh nycha is just uh very underfunded 
And you know, I mean, I would. They're underfunded. They're understaffed, and the properties are in disrepair. Many of them. And as far as I'm concerned, I do think that the private sector will always do better. The problem again goes right back to what we were just talking about. Well, the money has not been spent. When you're talking about a billion dollars that's out there in order to make people whole so that they can pay the real estate tax that goes back to the city, the state, et cetera. Um, I, there's I no mechanism just, whatsoever. I got to say, the reason why the um, – and, and I, I just disagree with the idea that the the, the private market will do housing better um, because um, – well – the private market will do better if you starve uh, public funding of housing. Um, but we have incredible amount of wealth disparity in this country. And um, uh, if it were up to me, our tax rates uh, in, in New York State and across the country would be much higher um, for, uh, for, for wealthy folk. And we would fund uh, NYCHA. And when you don't have the profit um, incentive... Um, you're going to be able to provide much more affordable housing, um, and 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 you know that's that would be the the way to do it. I mean, it's it's a two step process when you say the private uh, market does better because the first step is uh, prevent the public um, the government from doing better, and the way you do that is by starving them of resources. Oh, all right, uh, let's just. Agree to disagree on that one. Fair enough. You know, I, I, I just find that government has always just been problematic. Traveling on summer vacation is a great way to disconnect. But sometimes you just need to connect to public Wi-Fi to take care of emails or post photos on social media. Unfortunately, cybercriminals can spy on unsecured public Wi-Fi networks to see your browsing history, read your emails, and even see your passwords. We do a lot more online these days. Your information is out there, exposed. Unfortunately, cyber criminals are always looking for ways to take that information. The all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. Device security helps block cyber criminals from stealing your personal information. VPN to help keep information you send over Wi-Fi safe. LifeLock Identity Theft Protection monitors your personal information and alerts you to potential threats. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can opt into cyber safety. So sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off Norton 360 with LifeLock at Norton.com slash Cohen. Let me just keep moving here. With the resurgence of COVID, with now the Delta variant, it's creating its own potential humanitarian crisis as um, states lead by GOP governors with low vaccination rates are facing devastating consequences. Now, these politicians are effectively killing their constituents. At what point will we look back at the behavior of these people and decide that it was criminal and that they engaged in a conspiracy of their own to play politics with a deadly virus? I mean, do we have to send in the federal government to Florida, as an example, and these other places to intervene to head off more death? I mean, I don't know what you what what you mean by that, but I I I, I don't and and uh, by by sending in the federal government and and as far as like we 
I mean, I've, you know, I've been there for a while. I mean, you look at uh, Asa Hutchinson the other day was giving a press conference. Um, talk about Mia Culpa was saying, I, I probably shouldn't sign th- that legislation two months ago that outlawed mask mandates um, because now he wants to reverse it because people need to wear masks um, in, in his state. Uh, you've got hospitals that are overflowing in, in Florida. They've reached, uh, you know, the, the, the peak of uh, hospitalizations. Um, it's incredibly criminal. And, you know, I, I, I don't know what the, the answer is. I think uh, once there is a, a final approval for the, um, for the Pfizer vaccine, which, uh, you know, supposedly is coming in a month, uh, the FDA is getting pressure from it, uh, you know, about it. I think at this point you have enough people that have been vaccinated that um, you, you might as well, you're, you're all in already at this point. Um, I mean, I can understand scientists are saying like, you know, look, this is, we have a process for this and we want to follow it. Um, at that point, then I think hopefully we'll see um, uh, federal entities and we're already starting to see that. And then in private entities um, that start to say like, you know, you can't, you can't come on this airplane unless you're vaccinated. You can't go, go into this situation unless you're vaccinated. And, and hopefully there'll be more of a nudge. But my my fear is is um, not just the the Delta variant, but gamma. I mean, I, I I'm afraid that we're all going to learn a lot more about the Greek alphabet than than we when we hoped. And um, early on in this, I think it was maybe April of uh, 2020. I've had a bunch of epidemiologists on my show and had one on in in April and I asked him what he thought, what was the thing that scared him the most about this? And he said to me, and this has been, this has haunted me, uh, COVID 2022 is what he said to me. And, uh, which is another way of saying Delta, Delta plus gamma. I don't know what comes after the theta. I mean, uh, it, it, it it could be a real problem. Were you not part of a fraternity? I was in, in not. College? I was not a fraternity. Oh, because because had you, you'd have to, of course, memorize the Greek alphabet. Yes. Well, that right? was one of the reasons. Uh, only one of the reasons why I didn't join. After the Delta is Epsilon. Yeah, just to let epsilon. you know. Epsilon. Thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> My and, pleasure. And, and, and Epsilon. I mean, that that is a real concern, I think. And, um, uh, you know. Hopefully, uh, the vaccines hold up fairly well. But I, I, I'm afraid we're going to start to hear more about the data about the vaccines. And, and they clearly keep you from getting um, serious COVID uh, for the most part. And they clearly reduce the amount of hospitalizations. But um, it's unclear to me, you know, I don't know that we have enough data or, frankly, the, the mechanisms in this country set up to gather data to really understand um, how much protection you get from the vaccine from just getting infected by it. Um, I mean, these are, you know, so we'll see. Look, I know several people, um, friends of my parents, for example, he was fully vaccinated with the Pfizer uh, vaccine. And right now he had uh, just a couple days ago, he got reinfected uh, with the coronavirus. But being that he had been vaccinated he had a hundred point four fever yes you know his throat was hurting him scratchy a little bit respiration issues and you know a little pain in the chest but two days 48 hours later he was back you know 
being himself on the golf course. Yeah. And he's in Florida. So what do we know? Right. Now, what do we know? Well, what we know is that 0.0001% of those who are vaccinated from the last X number of thousands of Americans that have perished were vaccinated, right? And we're basically talking about everyone that has passed. You see it on CNN all the time. They're constantly showing these, these videos of yeah. people in the ICU praying that the vaccine can help them and so where the nurses have to sadly tell them there's yeah. nothing that we can do. You're, you're, you're a goner. And this should not happen in how stupid that they were to have listened to Trump and these other fools that basically don't give two shits about them, right? That it's all about politics for them. And I do hope that, you know, when all of this information well, finally money. comes out. It's all about always. money, too. It's all about money. I mean, you know. Uh, you've got, um, you know, the, the Tucker Carlson's and the Laura Ingram's and it, it, it's, it's all about money. It's all about money. Yep. And um, uh, under the guise of, of politics. And uh, that's what incentivizes a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of those people. And it's um, it's uh, it's stunning. I mean, I, I think, you know, history is going to look back upon this era with just, the, you know, Total disdain. I I see the total disdain. But I'm glad you brought up one of my other favorite, you know, people to talk about the scumbag Tucker Carlson. Now, because I'm curious if you saw the news that Tucker is going to be broadcasting his wonderful show from Hungary this week as he's slated to speak at a conference for Hungary's far right nationalist leader, Viktor Orban. Now, in the past year, especially since January 6th, Tucker has staked out his space far to the right, espousing core white supremacist beliefs and has done much to publicly normalize what would once have been unthinkable except from the most hardcore white nationalists. Now, only he does it on television with a suit and a tie. He, I mean, in essence, he's become Fox News' biggest star in the process. My question to you is, where is he going with all of this? Because I've heard whispers that he's preparing himself for a presidential run. What's your thought on the topic? Um, I, I, I don't know if I buy that he's going to run for president. I find that hard to believe. But um, he's, he's, a, um, he's a craven, um, I think, money and fame hungry um, uh, just despicable person. I mean, there's a clip of him from, I think it's in the late nineties on C-SPAN where he's talking about Bill O'Reilly and he's saying, you know, Bill O'Reilly's a bit of a fraud. I'm paraphrasing here, but he's saying, you know, Bill O'Reilly tries to be the every man. And at one point it's going to become, ex- he's going to become exposed um, and that he's not really an every man. He's a millionaire making uh, you know, a ton of money on television. And, I think what happened with Tucker Carlson over the course of his career was that he realized Bill O'Reilly actually never got exposed. And uh, not for that anyways. And I think at one point he realized like, this is, this is the, this is the special sauce. And um, I think that's what, what, what Tucker Carlson has become. I mean, uh, he's, you can go back at CPAC. uh, I don't know, maybe it was 10, 10 years ago. He got up in front of everybody and said, you know, conservatives don't believe in good journalism. And um, I'm sorry to to say. And he got booed. 
and it was his way of introducing the, I think it was the, the daily caller. Is that the, was that his, uh, at one point? And, um, it was ostensibly going to be about, um, real journalism from conservatives. And, and within a couple of months, it was all, you know, all of their clicks came through like uh, Swedish model, you know, Swedish swimsuit stuff. And uh, it ultimately just became, you know, another another just BS conservative outlet. Uh, but that's, you know, that's that's what Tucker does. He's full of shit. I, I, I know for a fact that uh, he was on CNN, you know, promoting the Iraq war. Didn't give a shit. Didn't give a shit. Would walk off, go go out in the back, smoke a cigarette. And um, and and tell people that he didn't he didn't really care about the whole thing. Uh, and you think about the hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians that w- were killed as a function of our involvement in that war. I think it's just reprehensible. Yeah. Well, look, you talk about, you know, Tucker Carlson as far as um, wealth and as far as fame. Well, he certainly has the fame. I mean, he does have a top rated racist supremacist viewership uh, on Fox. I mean, he does have it. He is. Certainly not one that could walk down the street or go into a restaurant and not be noticed by virtually everyone, Republican and Democrat alike. And as far as money, my understanding is his family's got real money, that his stepmom, right, is part of the is the heiress to the Swanson. I think they're what TV dinners. Um, it's a you know, it, it's a huge, huge company. I could see somebody like Tucker Carlson, who I always refer to on this program as a Donald Trump 2.0. He's certainly smarter than Donald, right? I believe that the family's wealth is actually multi-generational, so it's there unlike Donald's, right? Um, Yes, it went from his father. So he's one generation, whereas Tucker Carlson is uh, multi-generational. And I believe that he certainly has the hubris for it. He's certainly narcissistic. And I could certainly see him, you know, especially as people are pumping him up and talking about him as being a potential candidate. But I think he's even more dangerous than Donald because he's seen now what Donald has done and how Donald dismantled or tried to dismantle our democracy. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, look, I, I it's possible um, but I don't know, you know, it's possible he might run for office, uh, but I, 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 I tend to doubt it. I don't think he has the, um, uh, the allure or the, the charisma, frankly, of, of Donald Trump. I don't think he has the broad appeal that Trump had to the extent that Trump had a broad appeal. Um, and, uh, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not terribly concerned about him per se i'm more concerned about frankly the the voter suppression uh and the redistricting uh that's going to take place um you know in the in the in the coming election cycle uh but my sense is that you know trump is going to you know short of a, a debilitating heart attack my sense is he's going to run what's your no, opinion he's not on running that? No, he's not running. Uh, the indictments that are coming against um, that's already now against his company that will come against him, his kids, uh, the various um, lawsuits that he has, whether it's Georgia or Washington and so on. It's I think a lot of things are going to change and change in a very short period of time uh, for Trump. I think a lot of their um, bravado is going to go away like it's going away with Weisselberg and Tom Barrick. You know, it's one thing when you're under investigation. Ah, fuck you. All right. When you come, you want want to come to the ring? Come to the ring. We'll fight it out there. Well, they're in the ring now. 
They're in the ring now with the indictments. The only thing that comes after an indictment, as far as I'm concerned, is incarceration. And that's really, they'll fight it out. They'll bring on the lawyers. Hopefully they don't bring on stupid Rudy, right, Kaludi, because, you know, he'll just, you know, screw it up again and probably show up at the Four Seasons landscaping right. instead of 500 Pearl Street. Why so he's that not running. Why wouldn't that motivate him to run more? I mean, if he's now looking he, at that. He can't. He, he will not be able to. Donald is very, very myopic in how he's able to do things. It's going to be he's going to be too toxic. And even his followers are beginning to walk away from him. And you'll start to see that even including at his super spreader events, people are leaving. They're tired of listening to the same bullshit. I have the biggest audience, the biggest crowds. Nobody. Washington, Lincoln, Kennedy, nobody could have won under COVID, blah, blah, blah. It's the same shit, and everybody's heard the same. It's like going and seeing The Godfather, right, every single day for a year. After after a month or two, as great of a movie as it is, you just can't go and see it again. But, you know, Sam, as we're winding down the hour, I have one final question for you, right? Because this wouldn't be mea culpa unless we spoke about the former guy, at least, you know, one question during the hour. Now, last week's release of memos documenting Trump's push to have elections declared as corrupt created a whole new problem for Merrick Garland in that they're also indicative of crimes committed by the former president while he was in office. So the question to you is whether he will have the political will to prosecute and move forward. Because if these memos are the smoking gun that they appear to be, why has there not been more vigorous action to move against Trump already? Uh, my, my question, what are we waiting for? I, I mean, I, I agree. But, you know, it's the same question as, uh, you know, why, why we didn't see um, Democrats uh, deal with uh, George Bush. Frankly, when Barack Obama came in, he just uh, said, it's time to turn the page. You're not going to hold any of the people in the Bush administration for account on their torture regime on their lies about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, on their spying on Americans. Uh, there was a lot of things that the the Obama administration should look back on Trump, both, I mean, uh, Bush, I should say, both as a, uh, as a matter of justice, as a matter of criminality, and as a political matter. I think it is a huge mistake um, uh, by uh, the administration to sort of just neglect to look into those things. I, I think, you know, th to some extent, they're doing it with January 6th. But what's interesting to me, there is potential that 2022, which is an off-year election, which everybody knows generally uh, is unfavorable to the party that holds the presidency, is going to be unlike most midterm off-year elections because on some level, as a function of what happened on January 6th and the January 6th commission, it seems to me also uh, it would be good for the DOJ uh, to get into this just as a political matter, in addition to the issues of you need to hold powerful people to account. Um, the Democrats are going to be able to run against Donald Trump in 2022. And uh, that motivated a lot of their voters in 2018 and 2020 to vote against Donald Trump. And they're going to be able to not they're going to be able to you know play that card to some extent. Or at least, you know, when and how active they play it is is largely irrelevant because Donald Trump is inserting himself into this race and he does it uh, in 2022. He's still inserting himself into our politics. 
And um, it's going to be interesting. And I think the, the Republicans are starting to realize they have a problem here with this. Uh, you know, Donald Trump just endorsed a, a candidate out in Ohio who won, but with 35 percent of the vote. <laughs> so there were 65 percent of the Republicans there who did not listen to what Donald Trump says. That is a very, very dangerous formula for the Republicans because he got the plurality, but he didn't get the majority. And so um, uh, the 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 Republicans are, you know, they can't run against uh, Joe Biden in 2022. And the Democrats on some level, at the very least, will have the opportunity to have Donald Trump bring out some of their voters. Um, I, I I I think the Biden administration makes a big mistake if they do not um, keep reminding people of Donald Trump's malfeasance. I think they should do it with the Republican Party, too, uh, frankly. Uh, but uh, the Democrats of this generation in particular, they um, they are very, very timid. I mean, I, I, I you know, I mentioned earlier I've been in doing radio since 2004 when I was on Air America in 2000, as late as 2005. I had conservative callers who would call up uh, talking about Bill Clinton. He hadn't been president for five years, but it still animated the Republican Party at that time. Um and it's effective politics, just on a, on a sheerly on a political level. Never mind the idea that, like, you need to hold powerful people to account, whether it's uh, George Bush or Ronald Reagan or, you know, Iran-Contra or uh, savings and loan. I mean, on and on like this. Uh, every time the, the, the Democrats fail to uh, hold these people to account, it, we get a more and more erosion of, of the so-called, you know, norms of democracy. Yeah, and which goes right back to their adage, no one is above the law. So Merrick Garland, if you're listening to the show, let's go. Time to get busy. Sam, I want to thank you. You know, I told you the hour goes by fast. I really appreciate your insight uh, and the conversation. And um, I certainly hope, I hope that everyone gets held you know, responsible for their own dirty deeds. That's the Indeed. way it's supposed to be. Indeed. And thank you again. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. And now for today's mea culpa. In thinking about Mark Meadows, I am reminded that Trump cannot be Trump unless there are people like Meadows willing to do his bidding. That is the central point about Donald Trump that so many people forget. He is not a master criminal or deviant or evil genius. He's a rich kid playing with other people's money. He is who he is and will always be Donald Trump. He will never change. There will never be a mea culpa or some kind of miracle conversion. He's a fucking asshole and will continue to be a fucking asshole until the day he dies. There's no getting around that fact. What's amazing is that he's been an insufferable asshole for his entire life. Now granted, I was not around when young Master Trump was snapping classmates with a towel. But I've heard enough to know he's been an asshole since the dawn of time. At one point, he was celebrated for his prickish tendencies on The Apprentice. But now he's just another old insufferable white guy who bullies and harasses his employees for sport and gratification and does the same to a nation cowed by fear by his supporters who are also, dare I say, fucking assholes. They are the uncles you avoid on Thanksgiving and the social media parasites who hijack your feed with fake news. They're the people on the plane who take off their masks and hassle the flight attendants. They're the anti-vaxxers and the COVID deniers. They are MAGA fanatics. Like the emergence of the Delta variant, these people will not go away. This is the status quo and we must now figure out how to live with these terrible people. 
But how do you make a truce with these lunatics? There is no middle ground. So I continue to hope that this whole fever soon passes. I find myself wishing not for a great liberal to emerge, but the next great conservative who can lead the party away from the madness. Until then, I fear that we are doomed to live in a perpetual state of conflict. Trump will never go away unless he is convicted, and these people won't stop either unless they are converted. Somebody better come along soon. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, and it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea Culpa, nothing but the truth. Pluto TV is playing the biggest movies every night this summer for free. Watch hit movies like The Matrix, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Scary Movie, Runaway Bride, and more all summer long. Check out the biggest stars like The Rock, Keanu Reeves, Tom Cruise, Julia Roberts, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and more. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of free TV channels in English and Spanish featuring TV shows, news, sports, comedy, and more all for free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device, including Android and Apple smartphones. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. 